From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Anita Powell, VOA White House Correspondent. Welcome, Cindy and Anita. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, here are the issues. President Joe Biden and Democratic lawmakers are edging closer to a deal on the scope of their cornerstone economic revival package with hopes of reaching a compromise soon. The outcome could determine whether the budget bill gets through Congress and whether the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill, already passed by the Senate, receives majority support in the House of Representatives. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol voted unanimously to hold former President Donald Trump's former advisor Steve Bannon in criminal contempt for defying a subpoena to appear and produce records. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made a three-day visit through Latin America in a bid to support and broaden ties with Latin America's democracies amid a new spike in tension with Venezuela. Kidnappers in Haiti are demanding $1 million a head after seizing 17 people tied to Christian Aid Ministries, a U.S.-based missionary group. Colin Powell, the first black U.S. Secretary of State and top military advisor, died on October 18th at the age of 84 from complications due to COVID-19. Powell was a United States statesman and a retired four-star general in the United States Army. He was the first and so far the only African-American to serve on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Well, those are the issues and topics, and let's get started. Well, President Biden met with members of Democratic lawmakers this week in an attempt to salvage what had once been his $3.5 trillion budget plan. Well, Anita, I'll start with you. How is this process going? It's the moderates and the progressive caucuses that President Biden's meeting with. I call them the mods and the progs because he's met with them so much that one has to use shorthand to describe these meetings. But basically, here's what it comes down to. The Progressive Caucus, which is led by Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, is in favor of a larger package, the original $3.5 trillion package, but the moderates are pushing back, in particular two moderates. That would be Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. And so it seems like what's going to happen now is we're going to have a smaller package, maybe to the tune of $2 trillion, which is a casual number, but let me just remind you, $2 trillion is a lot of money still. And so this is where we are right now. The president is trying to inspire, cajole, and convince as Jayapal said, to keep as many things in this bill as possible, or in these two bills as possible. So that's where we are right now, and the White House is hesitating to put a deadline on when this might actually go into a vote, but they seem very optimistic and say progress is being made. Also, in mentioning West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, Cindy, his opposition to a core climate strategy has Democratic lawmakers scrambling to negotiate alternative climate proposals. Manchin told the White House he is opposed to a clean electricity plan, which is key to Biden's agenda. So could he sink this bill in a 50-50 split Senate? 
Well, that is what everyone is watching, and some Democrats are frustrated and are calling him obstructionist. Of course, he's from West Virginia, which is a heavily coal mining state. So, yes, all eyes have been on Manchin, and there were some flurry of sort of sharp words between him and progressive Senator Sanders a few days ago, and then they met behind closed doors and then went out in front of the cameras and embraced each other. So there's a lot, as Anita said, a lot of discussions going on this week, all at the Capitol and at the White House, and President Biden himself is very much hands-on, very much trying to clinch the vital part of his domestic agenda. And a lot of observers say this is really high stakes, this is really make or break for him, and climate paid leave, health care. There's a lot of things that are here and something is going to have to go. Although some are saying since it's a 10-year bill, perhaps they could cut the cost just by shortening some of the measures. But then again, I'm not sure if moderates will go for that or not. Also, just looking ahead to next month and the United Nations Climate Change Summit, if this climate bill is not passed this time around, how might this affect President Biden at this upcoming summit in Scotland? Right. This is an issue very much on the administration's mind right now. How are they going to stand in front of the world leaders and say, we're serious about climate change when there's a very noisy, very out front leader in the U.S., and I'm talking about Joe Manchin, objecting to, you know, core tenets of the administration's climate change policy? The answer is we don't know how this is going to play out. And I think I would just remind our audience that, like, there is an element of theater in politics always in D.C., and it's sometimes hard to see from this Beltway bubble what is real and what is not and what the end game is for all of these characters. And I'm not trying to be cynical here, but that is part of the theater of making the sausage in Washington. There is theater always in making the sausage. We never make sausage quietly in Washington. There's always a lot of performance around it. So. I think it's a big question that's hanging over the administration's head right now that they are going to seek to resolve before they show up in Scotland and have to talk tough about how the U.S. is going to meet its climate commitments. Yes. On now to our next topic where the select House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol voted in favor of holding former advisor to then-President Trump, Steve Bannon, in criminal contempt for not appearing before the committee last week. Cindy, Bannon's attorney said that he said he was following the direction of former President Trump's legal team to not provide documents or testify. Will this reasoning help Bannon? Well, that is a very good question, Kim. The House Select Committee voted unanimously to hold him in criminal contempt. The full House is also voting. And ultimately, the Justice Department will decide. And what the former White House advisor and, and close confidant of former President Trump is saying, he's invoking executive privilege which he and former President Trump invoked many times when Trump was still in the White House. But a lot of legal observers are saying, okay, you're no longer in the White House, executive privilege no longer holds. And you have one of the Republican members of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, where thousands of people sieged the Capitol and several policemen and others were killed. One of the Republican Congresswomen, Representative Cheney, said the fact that Bannon and former President Trump are signing executive privilege indicates 
that they talk with each other, that they plotted, planned, and likely organized the siege on the U.S. Capitol. Of course, Trump denies this, but ultimately, as I said, the Justice Department will decide, and I think Bannon, if one knows him and how he acted in the past, is likely enjoying this and seeing this as part of a political fight. And if he is a martyr for sticking with Trump and being, as he sees it, persecuted by Democrats, then that's just the way that he wants it. Also, and to your Anita, this week, Trump's attorneys, they filed a lawsuit against the committee and other government agencies in federal court to block the release of these documents related to his actions on January 6th. So what is the effect on the probe of the committee at this point? Well, what I can tell you from the White House from the West Wing is that the administration doesn't want to touch Steve Bannon or really any of the Trump administration with a 10-foot pole. So this is something that they're trying to steer very clear of, other than just clearing the way for the judicial branch to do its work. The White House is basically trying to say, we're letting justice run its course, but we're not interfering. And that's the line they're taking, which is why we're not hearing as much about this from the White House as some journalists would like. It's being asked about every day. These are not names that Jen Psaki would like to cross her lips. So she has not mentioned it at all. And I guess that's because the White House is very sensitive to being seen as interfering in judicial processes. And they want to maintain that the judiciary is independent. That's how the White House is playing it. They're trying to stay as far away from this as possible. Also, I'll just throw out one last question on this topic. Could this come down to former President Trump being subpoenaed to appear before the committee? I think that would be something that they would try to avoid for a number of reasons, the spectacle of seeing a former president. And I think they are trying to get the records, including phone records between Bannon and Trump. And just for listeners to understand, one of the reasons that the committee says that Bannon is such a critical figure is that in his podcast on January 5th, the day before the siege on the Capitol, he said, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. He said, all I can say is strap in. And he was instrumental in getting people stirred up and fomenting this so-called stop the steal by those who mistakenly, and not true, but who said that President Biden didn't actually legitimately win the election and that we were trying to stop Congress which was meeting on January 6th to certify the election results to actually stop Vice President Mike Pence from certifying the results. Just give a little uh, context so that everyone remembers. And just globalizing that context a little bit, it's important to remember that, that Bannon's argument is I wasn't in the administration at the time. He had long since left the administration. But many of our listeners around the world might be thinking this sounds awfully familiar. I mean, this evokes the important role of the fourth estate, of the media, in fomenting change, sometimes peaceful change and sometimes not peaceful change. I'm thinking, for example, of Radio Milkolin in Rwanda in the run-up to the 1994 genocide, where this radio station was instrumental in stirring up public sentiment that led to that horrible, tragic genocide. You can see that these words that we speak on these airwaves matter, and that is what Congress is positing and, and saying you know, we do need Bannon to be held to account, even though he was not in the administration at this time. And I think a lot of our listeners will just think of many examples from their own home countries where media has been used to achieve political ends like this and why this is so important and why the Hill is going after Steve Bannon in particular.
Excellent points that you both have brought up, and we will continue to follow developments on this investigation and bring you the latest that we have on it. It's time now for a short break, and when we return on his maiden trip to South America as U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken meets with two of the continent's strongest democracies. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype. Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Anita Powell, VOA White House Correspondent. Well, Cindy, you covered Secretary Blinken's trip to South America. The continent is geographically close to the U.S., but not always at the top of its diplomatic agenda. So what did Blinken hope to accomplish with his trip? Well, he, as you said, he picked two countries with stable uh, democracies at a time of rising authoritarianism in Latin America and populism in some places, and in some places, basically a failed state such as Haiti. So he picked Colombia and Ecuador, and in Ecuador, he gave a big speech about promoting democracy in Latin America and saying that it is a time of reckoning for democracy, and democracy is under threat. And he also acknowledged that at times the U.S. had been too focused on training and equipping security forces, fighting the war on drugs, and also on promoting democratic elections, and not focused enough on just the basic economic well-being, the bread and butter, as we say, of people in the region. And he said that that is something that they want to change. They want to support better labor standards and working conditions for people in the region. And this is part of his greater motto of the whole administration to say that democracies need to deliver for their people. And he visited the San Francisco University of Quito, which is sort of a little paradigm of this competition between the U.S. and China in Latin America and in Africa and other regions. This university hosts the Confucius Institute, which is, you know, promotes China. So Blinken said, look, we don't want to force any country to choose between the U.S. and China, but we do want to advocate for the highest standards for human rights and for working living conditions. Yeah, that's a good point. And also on the China situation, Blinken said that in certain narrowly defined areas, working with China comes with risks that Chinese companies, when push comes to shove, will do the bidding of the Chinese government. Is there really a big concern of South American countries forming alliances with China? Yes, I think so, very much so. China has been very, very active in the region and from Brazil to Mexico with some, you know, COVID diplomacy with the vaccines and long term with investment. So I think it, it is very much a concern. And the U.S. is really trying with this push for democracy to counter that and say, look, we share common values. And even though a bit ironically, when he arrived in Ecuador, the new president there, Guillermo Lasso, had just issued a, a state of emergency saying it was because of violent drug traffickers. And also in Colombia, which is a longtime ally of the U.S., but the president there, uh, Ivan Duque, has also been widely criticized 
because of protesters have been killed this year. So it's a delicate balance for the U.S. and trying to work with the allies that it has. And in the region, of course, there is Venezuela, where it has a very repressive regime. Some six million Venezuelans have fled, about half of them to neighboring Colombia. So that was also very much on the agenda. Yes, the regime of President Nicolas Maduro has really been a thorn in the side for the U.S. through three presidential administrations. Now President Joe Biden's team will take its turn trying to rally regional support for democratic reforms in the nation. So are there any steps that the U.S. will take towards trying to reform Venezuela? Well, it would seem to me right now to be kind of an intractable situation. I mean, the previous Trump administration basically tried to help with the interim president, Juan Guaido, who was elected, tried to facilitate or help or support him actually coming into power. And I think most sides are now admitting that that looks very unlikely to happen. So what the U.S. is doing is just promoting talks between Maduro and the opposition, but those have stalled out. Maduro has called those off, and Secretary Blinken harshly criticized him, saying once again Maduro is putting his own self-interest ahead of the interest of the country and of the people of Venezuela. And the U.S. has not really been able to provide humanitarian support within Venezuela itself. But to these millions of Venezuelans who are living now in in neighboring countries, the U.S. is trying to help and provide relief aid. I just want to like add one thing, which is that, as we might remember, a few weeks ago, President Biden pledged at the United Nations the U.S. would engage in a practice of, quote, aggressive diplomacy. And this is it in praxis. This is what we're seeing here with Antony Blinken going around to Southern American countries and modeling this idea of aggressive diplomacy. What is kind of interesting about this, I will note, and Sydney, you know this, having covered the State Department for longer than I have, is that U.S. government foreign policy doesn't deviate very much. This is probably very similar to policy four years ago or eight years ago when you go down to the level of like the country level in terms of how the United States carries out diplomacy. This policy hasn't changed much. This is just kind of a performative exhibition of it. So I think what's important is just to say that I don't think U.S. policy has changed that much vis-a-vis the rest of the world. It's just we're now seeing it modeled in public and demonstrated for the benefit, I suppose, of whoever wants to see it. Interesting, excellent points that you all brought up there. And I also wanted to mention Haiti, where a gang recently abducted 17 people associated with a Christian aid group, including five children. Most of those being held are Americans. One is Canadian. Kidnappings are occurring on a regular basis there with money being the primary motive. So I'll throw this out to both of you. I understand both Haitian police negotiators and the FBI are advising the missionary group on how to proceed and that negotiations are ongoing. Do we have any other information at this time? I'll go ahead and jump in and say that what we do know is that there's an FBI team on the ground and that is as much as the White House will really divulge because they say that they don't want to imperil operational security. So basically the message that they're saying is we're working on it. When asked whether they were negotiating ransom, White House press secretary said, of course, you know, that's not something we're going to talk about. And that's not the U.S. policy to pay ransom. So that's not the stated U.S. policy to pay ransom. So that's where we are in terms of what we know officially.
Glad you brought that up because I was going to ask, would a ransom be paid? And if so, is it the U.S. who will pay it or the Christian Aid Ministries organization, which I believe is out of Ohio? Cindy, your thoughts on that? Yes, the Christian Aid Organization is based in Ohio, and they have been in Haiti for a long time now. It's a relief and development group, and they provide food aid. They support and sponsor orphanages. They provide school supplies, and they have a microfinance program. Of course, they also distribute religious texts. But that organization is saying that they're holding a day of fasting and prayer for their members to be released five of whom are children, and they're also praying for the kidnappers. These are Amish and conservative Mennonites, and they advocate nonviolence and peacemaking. And it was interesting, I saw some of the Haitian people who they were helping, and they were very angry that they had been kidnapped, and they said, the government does nothing for us, and these people are actually coming and helping us, and they said they, they, you know, they need to be released right away. So this group is beloved among the very poor people that they are helping in Haiti. Those are good points, and I just wanted to add that this abduction is part of a wave of indiscriminate kidnappings that has become more brazen as the country Haiti suffers from political instability and severe poverty. One of the abductees is a two-year-old, and I think that kind of brings home just how brazen and how callous this group is. And I just want to underscore that because these are people who are working in Haiti, but they also kidnapped a two-year-old and are asking for about a million dollars in ransom on a two-year-old. I don't think anyone would say that that's not reprehensible. Good points. So we're going to move on now to close out the show and just wanted to take a few moments to reflect on Colin Powell, who passed away on October 18th at the age of 84. And just a little bit of his bio, Colin Luther Powell was born in Harlem, New York, and was the son of Jamaican immigrants. As a general... Powell became a national figure during Desert Shield and Desert Storm operations in Iraq. As chief military strategist, he developed what became known as the Powell Doctrine, an approach to military conflicts that advocates using overwhelming force to maximize success and minimize casualties. He became the 65th United States Secretary of State, serving under President George W. Bush. He was the first African-American appointed to that position. He was the first and so far the only African-American to serve on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Along with his wife, Alma, Powell began America's Promise Alliance as part of their dedication to the well-being of children and youth of all socioeconomic levels and their commitment to seeing that young people receive the resources necessary to succeed. So I will just go to you, Cindy and Anita, for your thoughts on the legacy of Colin Powell. Can I tell my Colin Powell story, please? Yes. So it was 2002. I was a reporter for the Daily Texan newspaper at the University of Texas at Austin. And Colin Powell came to speak at the university. And I had a very brief interaction with him. I think I was covering the event. And I said, as one does, when you meet somebody with the same surname as you, I said, General Powell, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Anita Powell. We are not related, by the way. And he laughed and he said, oh, yes, people always ask me if I'm related to Anita Powell. And I thought that was very sweet. <laughs> wow, that's a great story. And I thought that was sweet. This is a guy who, he achieved a lot in his life. He was the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? He was Secretary of State. He unequivocally, no matter what anyone says about his judgment calls, he unequivocally achieved 
great heights. And yet he had a sense of humor and he was humble. And he always remembered that as a model general would, that you lead while also keeping your humility. And I thought that was kind of great. Great story. Thanks for sharing that. Cindy? Well, at the State Department, I can second what Anita said about the humility and him being beloved. There was really such a palpable sense of loss and shock that he was gone. And Secretary Blinken talked about his leadership style and how he walked around through the building and basically asked people what they needed. And he said the way that he treated others made it so that people would walk through walls for him. Just the incredible loyalty to him as a person and just a very towering figure in diplomacy, in national security, a trailblazer, being the first African-American to achieve so many different things, first Secretary of State and first Joint Chiefs of Staff, but in a very sort of quiet way. So he will certainly be missed and remembered. Well, thank you both for sharing your thoughts on the legacy of Colin Powell. And we'll have to end the show on that note. My thanks go out to our panelists, Cindy Sane, BOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Anita Powell, a BOA White House Correspondent. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.